text this morning is from John chapter 3. Carries down in the nursery this morning, if anyone's wondering. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you so much for the blessings in our lives. Lord, but we also pray for several who are going through various afflictions and difficult seasons. Lord, I'm going to continue to pray for Eileen Bauer as she recovers from breaking her pelvis. And I'm so thankful that she's back in town and just continue to pray for her recovery. And Lord, pray that we can support her and love on her as a church family. Lord, I pray for Leonard as he's recovering and recuperating and pray for him, pray for his doctors as they are continuing to, to work with him and just wanna, wanna pray for, for good health, pray for his heart. Lord, I continue to pray for, uh, for Liz Yergler as well, Lord, as she uh, evaluates different options with a cancer diagnosis and pray for, for wisdom and discernment for her and for her family around her, Lord, as to what to do, pray for, for her health as well, Lord. Thank you for all of these people. Thank you for the, for the faith that they have in your gospel. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have through your gospel. I pray for the message today, Lord, that it would be faithful to your word, that it would be edifying to us all, pointing us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, continuing in the Gospel of John. And uh, I mentioned this last week. After today, we'll be taking a a bit of a hiatus from John. Um, In a couple weeks, we're going to start getting ready for Christmas and and looking through some passages in the book of Isaiah. Very excited about that. And uh, But yeah, I definitely love going through John. We'll finish chapter 3 today. And definitely would continue to encourage you to, to study this book. Um, I think today's passage is one where we really see the, the value, not just of, of reading through John once or twice, but really knowing God's word and seeing how interconnected these passages are. I've been toying around with the idea in my personal devotional life of, of picking one book a year and uh, in the Bible, and, and not just reading that book, obviously, but but specifically taking a really targeted focus either for six months or a year and and really knowing it. I can only speak for myself, but I know sometimes I'll read through a book and there's just so much there. There's so much depth and weight to it that um, I sometimes feel like it's when I really slow down and take my time that that I I get a lot out out of a book generally. John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. 
The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Last week, we were looking at an interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist and some of Jesus' followers. John's followers are seeing the early ministry of Jesus, and they're seeing that Jesus is having more success than John, and John's followers are a little bit envious. They're a little bit jealous of that. Yet we see the humility of John in his response to that. Today's section is the last place, the last scene, where we see John the Baptist in this gospel. As I've mentioned before, John the Baptist is found in all four Gospels, and he's introduced in all four Gospels prior to the ministry of Christ. He is the forerunner to Christ who points to Jesus. It's noteworthy that there are a lot of similar themes in our passage this morning that we found in the very beginning section of John, the first 18 verses. And like our section this morning, John the Baptist is also in that opening prologue. Now, we spent several weeks in the opening prologue of this book. We find out many glorious realities about Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. That Jesus was in the beginning. That he was with God. That he is God. He is God who came into the world. He brings light, the light of righteousness into the world. He makes God known. Grace and truth come through him. And... Many of those same ideas, not all of them, but many of them will be revisited in our passage this morning. But the opening section of John is also interrupted by introducing John the Baptist. John 1, verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So we see from the outset that John the Baptist has been sent by God. He is not the light, and he's a witness to the light. In other words, to Christ. In the opening verse 1 to 18 of chapter 1, that opening prologue immediately flows into a section where John the Baptist is ministering and baptizing he sees Jesus and witnesses to who the Lord is. John 1, 29 to 31. John sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So this morning, as the ministry of John the Baptist, the divinely sent forerunner to Christ, comes to a close, it's the end of a section of this book. And for that reason, I think it's fitting that it makes so many allusions to the opening prologue. Because we're learning about Jesus in the opening prologue. It's telling us glorious truths about Jesus. But in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, Jesus isn't actually yet present in the story. Rather, it is after the opening prologue where we're actually seeing Jesus living out 
what has been said about him. John the Baptist comes onto the scene prior to Jesus' ministry. But here, in our section this morning, John's ministry ends. And we're seeing that what he is born witness to is true. Now, I know that I'm talking a lot about John the Baptist so far. But make no mistake that our section this morning is ultimately about Jesus. As John fades from the story, we conclude our passage with his final words from last week, John 3.30, where he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. And with that, we'll jump right into our passage this morning. Verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. The text says that Jesus comes from above, and in fact that Jesus is above all. And the end of this verse will also speak that Jesus is the one who comes from heaven and is above all. First thing I want to focus on this morning is the word above. I think it's helpful to to understanding our passage. I don't usually talk about Greek. This morning I will. The word that's being translated above comes from a Greek word, anothen. It's found 13 times in the New Testament. So not an especially frequent word, but also not a totally obscure word. More than anything else, the word is translated as above. Jesus uses that same word, John 19, 11, where he says, You would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. But the word anothen has, it can mean other things. And so if you do have your Bible open, I'd like to draw your attention to John chapter 3, verse 3. Same chapter. Verses 3 and 7, actually. John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's trying to understand what Jesus is doing in his ministry when the Lord says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you look at your Bible, it probably has a little note besides John 3, 3. And if you look to the bottom of the page, again, it, most of your Bibles probably have this. Maybe someone's doesn't, but it probably has a little note that, where it says that born again can also be translated as born from above. And the word for again in verses 3, 3 and 3, 7 is the same word used in verse 31, Anothen. It's important to note that regardless of if chapter 3, verses 3 and 7 are translated as born again or born from above, it doesn't really change the ultimate theological point that a person must be regenerated as a spiritual work by God in order to have a place in the kingdom of heaven. But I point this out because we don't speak Greek. Above And again, are different words in the English language. However, in Greek, the same word can be used to mean both things. Now, there are complexities to language and some things that we can miss if we aren't looking at the original language. So with a place like chapter 3, verse 3, which is right to say born again, as we're familiar with, or to say born from above. I believe both are right. 
In the Greek, think of it more like a play on words, which we lose in English because above and again don't mean the same thing in English. But they can in Greek. So I believe that the word that's used in verses 3 and 7 is meant to convey both ideas that we must be born again. In no way am I undermining that significance. But that in itself also means that we must be born from above. Both ideas matter. Because again, we must be born again. And the idea of a second birth is certainly understood in John chapter 3, verse 3, because Nicodemus responds in verse 4 by saying, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So that certainly implies that Nicodemus does understand Jesus referring to a rebirth, regeneration, being born again. But it is also from being born from above because it is the Lord of creation who enables people to be with him in heaven. And it is necessary for a person's salvation to experience spiritual regeneration, which is a work that God does. Jesus has said that we must be born from above. And this passage this morning tells us that Jesus himself is the one who is above all. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson says, The new birth from above can be experienced only by faith in the one who is from above. It matters that Jesus is from above. Again, this section doesn't necessarily tell us a whole lot that's new, but it's reminding us of the core facts which matter to the gospel. That Jesus came to earth with a heavenly ministry. From the outset of this book, John has established that Jesus was the word of God who was in the beginning, who was with God, who himself was God. And that all things were made through Jesus and that nothing without him was made that has been made. Verse 14 of chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us and that we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. John 51, Jesus is speaking to Nathanael. And he talks of how he came from heaven, and he makes reference to Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis. And Jesus says in John 1, 51, You will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That Jesus himself has the privilege of coming down from heaven and taking us to heaven. And again, we see heavenly language in John chapter 3, verse 13, where we were a couple weeks ago. Where Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All of these things point to Jesus as the one sent from heaven into the world. And it is because Jesus is heaven sent that we can have the promise of heaven. Jesus will talk later about his heavenly ministry. John 14, 2, where he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He can make these promises because he is above all. Back to our passage this morning. Jesus is above all, yet he's contrasted with John the Baptist, where it says 
If you look in verse 31, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth. In that sense, John the Baptist is a representative for all of humanity. A similar idea is expressed in Paul's letters when he talks about Adam as a representative for humanity. Just to give one example, although there are others, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 47 to 49. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So again, it's in some ways similar how Paul looks to Adam, and here the Apostle John looking at John the Baptist in his connection with the rest of humanity. Certainly not that John the Baptist introduced sin into the world, that was Adam. But that regardless, that John is still sinful, imperfect, fallen, finite. And that while his ministry is heaven sent and he has come into the world to be the forerunner to Christ, he is still just an imperfect, fallible human representative. But the good news is that Jesus is different The earth is sinful and fallen. Humanity is incapable of redeeming itself. But Jesus comes into the world with a ministry, which is from above. Verse 32. It's funny, I was working on the sermon yesterday, and I was like, I've got nothing to say. This message is going to be like five minutes. I don't have, and I don't know. Verse 32. He bears witness to what we have seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That he, in verse 32, is Jesus. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. To what does Jesus bear witness? It's to the heavenly truths as the one who is above all. Jesus is the word who existed in the beginning. In a world where no one has seen God, Jesus is the one who makes him known. Again, referring back to the first chapter, first section, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And while Jesus came into the world to reveal the truth of heaven, that he is the light of the world who brings us to God through his life, death, and resurrection, The world has largely rejected the gospel. Again, referring back to the opening prologue, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's a hyperbole, it's an exaggeration, where it says that no one receives his testimony. Obviously, there are those who receive Jesus' testimony. We wouldn't be here if not. But it's a wonder that the whole world doesn't accept his testimony. God came to earth, had a life full of miraculous activities. He died and rose. He comes in perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
Yet many do not believe in him. You have several ancient non-Christian historians who write about him. Yet there are those who deny that Jesus even existed as a historical person. And it's that the world wants to be blind to the righteousness of God. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 21. Jesus is still speaking to Nicodemus at this part. He says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we have those who do not receive the testimony of Jesus. And we see that contrasted by the next verse in our passage, 333. It says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Compare that to John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Whoever believes the testimony of Jesus, of his life, his teachings, his ministry, his identity as God and man, his role as the savior of the world, his death which he died for sinners, the life he was raised to, whoever receives his testimony, whoever trusts in Jesus, sets his seal that Jesus is the Lord and trusts in God and his promises. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Because to trust in Jesus is to trust in God. Even today, official documents oftentimes come with an affixed seal. If I were to try to sell you some property and give you a handwritten note, that might seem a little bit Illegal. But when you own a home or land or a vehicle, you have official documents that have the state seal or county seals on them. Same thing with documents like a birth certificate. There's an official seal that comes on them. Well, in the ancient world, official seals were also important on documents. The seal was very telling as to who the sender was and what authority they had. And this was especially significant in a time to look at a visual seal at a time when a lot of people couldn't read. And so what this verse is saying is that the person who receives the testimony of Jesus, the one who believes in Jesus, staking their very soul on the truth of who Jesus is. Really, this verse is a pretty packed theological statement. Because to trust in Jesus is to place your eternal security and hope in his gospel. Have you? Where's your seal? Do you trust in yourself? In your goodness? And Jesus is just off to the side? Or is he the Lord of your life? Do you look to Jesus as the one who is above all and who came to be with us on earth 
so that we could be with him in heaven. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. This verse tells us that Jesus has been sent by God. That's important to understanding how the Apostle John, really it's important to understand how John treats the idea of mission in his gospel. The mission of God is a theme that runs all throughout the scriptures. When I say mission, I mean God's work to restore sinful humanity to himself. And in the era we live in, after Christ has come, it is the work of the church in spreading the gospel through which humanity can be saved. That's God's mission in the world. Different Bible writers emphasize different elements of the mission of God. One thing that the Apostle John in his book constantly talks about is the idea of being sent by God. Mentioned dozens of times in this book. And while the idea is present in the other Gospels, it's nowhere near the prevalence that we see in the Gospel of John. We first see God, the idea of God sending in relation to the ministry of John the Baptist. Don't have a slide for that one. One six says, there was a man sent from God. His name was John. None of the other Gospels use the word sent in conjunction with John the Baptist. Luke says that the word of the Lord came to John. Mark 1.4 says that John appeared baptizing. The Gospel of Matthew says that in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judah, of Judea. But only in the Gospel of John does John emphasize the fact that John the Baptist himself was sent. And Jesus is sent. Jesus has been sent into the world to do the work of the Father. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see in this gospel that the way in which we treat Jesus is tantamount to the way we treat God. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not comes into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And we see a culmination of this sending after the resurrection. Jesus is talking to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of John, similar to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. Jesus says in John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. It is after Jesus has fulfilled the divine plan for his ministry in the world that the one who was sent becomes the sender. And that then puts the onus on the church to fulfill the mission of God in the world. But we weren't sent to do this mission alone. Jesus has given a helper. And the same spirit who was at work in Jesus during his ministry 
has been given to all who believe in the gospel to work for the mission of God in the world. The Holy Spirit has been present so far in this gospel, but he's talked about with far greater frequency as the gospel of John progresses. But in the ministry of Jesus, we see all three persons of the Trinity at work for the divine plan, the divine mission. And the same is true within the church today. The text says that Jesus is given the Spirit without limit. There were prophets in the Old Testament who were endowed with the Holy Spirit for a specific ministry, for specific purposes. But they weren't equipped with all the knowledge of the Lord. When we moved here a few weeks ago, we had to rent a a U-Haul. Big U-Haul truck, the biggest one they had. And when I was still in St. Louis, I was driving that at a couple places downhill. And I've never had one of these on a vehicle before, but it had something called a, a governor, which controls the speed of it. So you're not going down a hill at like 90 miles an hour. Uh, so in, in a sense, it was putting some limitations on, on the truck and what it could do. With the prophets in the Old Testament, they were not given unmitigated access to the Holy Spirit. And the same is true today. We see a similar idea in Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Yet God gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. I think about the electricity which comes into our homes. High voltage power lines can actually carry electricity that's several hundred thousand volts. It's taken to substations where the power is reduced. But even from there, it can still be a couple hundred thousand volts before it gets to further substations that further reduce the the voltage of the electricity. But even the power lines in town can be several thousand volts. If you don't believe me, just don't don't try what don't do that. But, (laughs) But by the time it gets to our homes, it's usually only about 120 volts. And even that's incredibly powerful. Think about all the things that we run on electricity. Think about how even a a little shock when you're closing your car door, how much that hurts. The prophets just had a a small piece of the divine knowledge. Some might have had 13,000 volts. Some might have had 120 volts. But Jesus is unlimited in what he's been given through the Holy Spirit. Already discussed this morning, But because Jesus is above all and from heaven, he has the divine knowledge and privileges because he himself is Lord. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When we talked about that verse several weeks ago, one of the things we talked about was that God is so holy and righteous that no sinful person can be in his presence. But Jesus is himself God. And so he is able to make God known. And Jesus is the one who is given the spirit without limit. Verse 35 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. A little bit of theology. 
What does it mean that the Father has given all things into the hand of the Son? Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Jesus is also eternally God. John 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been God. There was never a time when he was not God. And Jesus has eternally possessed all the qualities of God. Jesus did not give up being God to become man. Jesus did not become less of a God. He was not a man who was promoted to a divine status later on. He wasn't created. He is eternally God, eternally divine. At the incarnation, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was fully God and fully man. But during the time of his ministry in the world, though he is God, there were aspects of his divinity which he laid aside. How exactly that works, we cannot know. There is one being in the history of the universe who was fully God and fully man, and that is Jesus. So the specific mystery of the humanity and divinity of Christ, again, is not something that a human mind can grasp. But it's important to keep in mind and understand that he is eternally God. These ideas will unfold throughout the gospel. But here we're starting to see a little bit more and more elements of the relationship between Jesus and God. Jesus is the one who dies for sins. He bears the divine wrath for sins. He is the one who is sent. John 5, 19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And there are several other passages in the Gospel of John which uh, talk about Jesus' relationship to God. The Trinity is a perfect relationship of these three persons. So one thing that this verse does is it tells us that the Father loves the Son. And we see throughout the Gospel of John that the Son honors the Father. Jesus talks of the will of God and living in accordance with God's will. Yet, at the same time, it is God who gives all things to Jesus. So, Jesus relinquishes some of his privileges during his ministry, yet God grants all things to Jesus. Jesus is sent by God and submits to the divine plan while on earth. Yet, Jesus is also enabled to, to fulfill the divine plan through his own life, death, and resurrection. I believe Christology is perhaps the most complicated aspect of all of theology. I get that that's a very complicated idea. It's very abstract. But as the Gospel of John continues to, to progress and unfold, I think we see more and more about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
this verse is a summary of the two routes that we can take with the gospel. That we can trust in Jesus, believe in him, place our seal on the truth of his gospel. The promise for that is eternal life. Yet the consequence for not believing in him is that the wrath of God remains on you. Not a new idea in this gospel, but again, one we must be constantly reminded of. The gospel message itself, that belief in Jesus and that alone is what brings eternal life. That without that, there is no salvation. Jesus is above all, Whereas we are of the earth. Jesus speaks the word of God. We create a man-made gospel where we make ourselves and our own lives and actions our hope. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard as one who came from heaven and who makes God known. As one who has the Holy Spirit without limit. And it is because of who Jesus is that he is the one who has the authority over admission into the kingdom of heaven. Because he came from heaven and died so that we could be with him in heaven. It is through him and him alone. Where have you placed your seal? Is your hope in Christ... Or is it in yourself? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I I pray for all of us that we would trust in Jesus, know that he is Lord and Savior, see the life that he lived, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, God and man in the world, perfectly divine, yet like us in our humanity. Lord, may we turn to Christ believe in him, turn away from our sins, and walk in the new life that he invites us into. In Jesus' name, amen.